Will you turn with me now in your Bible to Psalm 84? Psalm 84. And I'm going to ask you, wherever you are, whether that's right here with us this morning or uh, in front of uh, your live stream, to stand up now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Hear now God's word. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars. O oh, Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man trust in you. You may be seated. Sure, in the reading of the psalm this morning, Psalm 84, you are impressed with just how gripping this psalm is. And it is that because it bears upon its very face the stamp of the deepest spiritual passion. The psalmist opens exalting, as he says here, in the loveliness of God's dwelling places. And then in the next verse, he speaks to his yearning and his desire to be in those very courts and to sing with body and soul to the glory of God. And then he proclaims the richest blessing of God upon all who come before his throne and bring worship unto him. And then later on in the psalm, you read as he pivots towards the end about how much he loves the courts of the house of God. And he'd prefer to spend just a moment at the front porch of God's heavenly tabernacle than spend thousands drifting aimlessly in the world and its tents of wickedness. And then it speaks in almost a grand finale flurry-like fashion in verse 11 as it speaks about what God is for the believer who worships him. 
his son, his shield, his grace. He withholds nothing. And it ends with that grand claim at the end that every single person who exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is blessed. You see, it, it's pretty easy to sense the, the depth and, and the rigor of the spiritual passion of this psalm. But, but then on the other hand, I think something that's fairly evident is you begin to examine it with a little bit more scrutiny. You begin to wonder what is its central core. It's puzzled scholars, not just me, not just you this morning. Scholars debate about what in the world ties it together. Everybody notes the passion and the spiritual rigor, but they say, how does it connect? And one way to just uh, for yourself to evaluate that idea of the difficulty of discerning how it ties together is just to note the transitions in the psalm. Uh, because it's not apparent uh, too easily how it's stitched together. Because at the end of verse 4, you have this sort of exalting note of those praising God. And then in verse 5 and following, you transition to what appears to be a spiritual journey. And then the um, psalm seems to indicate at verse 7 that the journey is completed and the arrival is now in the house of the Lord. And then it signals to a prayer for the king, asking God to look upon their son and shield and to bless the face of the anointed, which would have been the king. And then it transitions to talking about the tabernacle once again. So uh, we have here a series of what appear to be disconnected units. And so many people have argued that uh, the reason probably it's like this is because it reflects the circumstances of its composition. The argument runs that this psalm was penned by David, even most of the reformers believe that. And basically what they argued is that this was penned by David when he was on the run for his life. And so the very composition and the circumstances of the composition of this psalm seem to indicate the fury pace of somebody who was overwhelmed with a rush of emotion due to the trauma of fleeing for his life. And so the idea is that instead of connecting his thoughts together, David just sort of vets a series of spiritual thoughts. And so the idea is we just appreciate that I think we should appreciate them. There are great riches and spiritual wonders in the psalm, but it seems to me a better point of entry into discerning the uh, circumstances of the psalm's composition and how to tie together its parts, what's located in the very title of Psalm 84. It doesn't say a psalm of David. It says a psalm of the sons of Korah. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean this morning? And the answer is it means a lot. Because if you go back to the law, you will find that Korah was one of the sons of Levi. And that particular line of sons was held intact by God's grace over the course of hundreds of years. And so if you read on in the Bible to 1 Chronicles 9.19, you will find that they were keepers at the thresholds of the tent, 
Now, I want you to notice that word threshold. Look down at your Bible and see that it is used right there in verse 11 when he says, I'd rather stand on the thresholds. So we have an important tie-in here. If you read on to 1 Chronicles 26, 19, you'll notice that David appoints the sons of Korah to be the gatekeepers at the temple. And if you read the 2 Chronicles 2019, you'll learn there that he even appointed them to serve as a part of the Levitical choir, which sang psalms in the temple to the Lord. Well, you start putting that all together and you realize that this is a very significant entry point into the psalm. Because what it tells you is that the sons of Korah were intimately related to and familiar with the worship at God's house. In fact, you could say they located their identity in this. They were gatekeepers, singers, porters, servants of the house. Their life revolved around the temple. Seems to us it's clear that whoever this particular son of Korah was, he's an exile. He's not a, a, a gatekeeper as the psalm opens and begins to move forward. The obvious sense of the verbs as he speaks of his longing and his yearning for the courts of the house of the Lord indicate to us that he's an exile somehow. He's not able to enjoy the courts of the Lord. And it's in that moment of exile that he begins to stop and think in a way that we all do, which is you don't tend to appreciate what you have until it's gone. Sitting there, wherever it was, in a wilderness, a cave, by a cactus, whatever it is, he begins to reflect. He thinks about the privilege which was his as he got to serve in that courtyard to minister before the Lord. And it's that sense of awareness and appreciation of what it is to worship God that causes his heart to yearn. But you can't call this some yearning for God. That's not adequate. Because it doesn't end like Psalm 42 with just a series of strings of affection and longing. Because the psalm moves forward from yearning to seeking. In other words, the psalm moves towards acting upon desire. And that desire is for God and his worship and his court. So I've entitled this psalm, Seeking God. Because that's exactly what he's doing. He's seeking God in the tabernacle and its courts, which is in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Seeking God in Christ through his worship. These all overlap and interpenetrate, so it's okay. We're not going to try to differentiate between them because scripture doesn't. So let's think about this theme of seeking God this morning, we'll break it down into a few parts. A season of separation, a relentless drive for worship, and a set of notice for the journey. So let's, let's key in on our psalm now and work our way through it. A season of separation. And I want to sort of um, leapfrog over uh, verse 1 and come into verse 2 because it's the most transparent in terms of its uh, speaking about separation. You see, 
this son of Korah, wherever he is, begins to groan out loud about his longing for the courts of the house of the Lord, that it's so loud, it's like a, a wolf howling at the moon. Listen to the, the pained expression here in the series of verbs of, of expression of longing. Uh, verse 2, my soul longed and even yearned. My heart and my flesh sing for joy. And, and see, all these verbs are powerful. To long here speaks of the deepest down visceral longing you can think of. The idea of yearning is a burning desire which cannot be quenched. And what he yearns for is made very clear and explicit. He yearned for the courts of the Lord. You think about those courts of the Lord. We know exactly what they are. They are the thresholds. This is the outer court. Another way you could think of it is it's the front porch. It's not even inside the house. It's the front porch. And he says, I yearn for the front porch. Calvin says we should conceive of this whole complex as something like a ladder with a series of rungs upon it. And the, the outer court, the courtyard, the threshold is the lowest step on the ladder. And inside the Holy of Holies with the ark would be the pinnacle or the top or the peak of the ladder. Yearning for that. My heart and my flesh sing. And here is where you begin to capture that he is aware of the spiritual implications of this place because he says in verse 2, My heart and my flesh sing to joy for the living God. You see, it's not the ceremonies, the sacrifices, or the flurry of activity of the courtyard with its bronze altar. And bronze laver, the priests, or any of it. No, what, what he sees, what this is about, is Christ. You see, he yearns for communion with Christ and his grace. Come back into verse 1. You see the captivation of his heart over this place. As, as this psalm just bursts with exultation in verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places. See that he is captivated with the beauty and the glory of the house of God and what it represents. Not just dumb letters and vain ceremonies, sprinklings, washings, sacrifices. No, he, he discerns that there's something that makes this house lovely and glorious and the thing that makes it lovely and glorious is the God who is the Lord of hosts who dwells there. If that's all he said, we would have a very profound sense and awareness of the spiritual passion of this soul. But it's interesting to us that this passion for the courts of the Lord is expressed in a second way here in terms of separation envy. That's the way to understand verse 3. And, I, and I'll admit at first read it, it feels a little different because he's speaking about birds. 
This is the bird has found a house, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. It feels a little cryptic until you remember this. This is a son of Korah, whose duty was to be posted on guard in the courtyard to guard it from profanation. In other words, he spent hours upon hours walking his guard post, which means he spent a lot of time with his hands in his pocket, whistling in there and looking around. You see, what he spotted, which the occasional worshiper at the tabernacle didn't, was some of his peculiar features, such as up in the rafters of the tents, little birds and swallows made their nests in the dark corners and they chirped and tweeted and buzzed around. And they had something he didn't in his exile. They had a place next to the altars of God. You should seize on that because that's very significant. It's the altars. And you remember that within the tabernacle, there were two altars. There was the, the bronze altar of blood sacrifice and then there was the altar of incense, and guess what? Both of these represent Christ and his priesthood. That bronze altar represents Christ as the sacrifice and the propitiation for our sin, and that bronze or that incense altar represents Christ and his priesthood as our intercessor. And so note here what he spotlights as what he misses and which these lucky birds get. They get Christ. They get to see the glory of Christ and his priesthood as sacrifice and intercessor. He doesn't tweet about it. He speaks about it, though. He longs for what they have. He expresses envy again in verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. President Verbs speaks of somebody not just occasionally or intermittently going there, but somebody's there. And, and the point of it is that if you read in the historical narratives, it's clear, for instance, in the narratives of Samuel, that there were some sort of makeshift apartments attached to the tabernacle. And so that means that some of the temple personnel lived there. And it's quite likely, as he expresses envy over this, that he had. And so here he is in the midst of exile, thinking about what he had had. And, you know, sometimes you don't always appreciate apartment living, you know? The, the neighbor upstairs is too loud and stumps across the floor at night. The, the guy next door plays his stereo too loud. The, the kids outside make too much noise when they're playing. Your parking spot's taken half the time by somebody who doesn't deserve it and even live there. Well, you can complain a lot about your apartment until you don't have it. And you're living under the stars. He begins to realize that what he had was golden. And it's gone. And he longs for it. This is about separation. A very profound sense of separation from God's presence. And before we move on to our second point, I think we ought to be struck here by the expression of longing 
And it it teaches the believer what you ought to long for. We haven't got into the rest of the psalm yet, but it's pretty obvious so far from what we've read. He exults in the loveliness of the tabernacle. He yearns to be there knowing it's the presence of God. And he's envious of even birds that are, uh, are living within its rafters in little makeshift houses. He loved God's house of worship. And what he does here is show that's what you should love. So it prompts a simple question, people of God. Do you love the worship of God? Do you love to hear the call to worship? Do you love to assemble with the saints? Do you love to come and sing the psalms of Praise to God. Do you love hearing proclamations of gospel grace when you've come into this house after a long week of sinning and straying in your hearts from Christ and you come here and you sit in these chairs and you hear God speak right into your ears and into your heart. You are forgiven because of Christ. See, the reason we had this heart longing is because he hadn't heard it. He'd been separated from God's house, and he is impressed with it. And so that's one of the things we're to think of when we come here. After our six days of exile in the world, we get to come to the house of the Lord and meet with the living God. We come here to meet God in Christ. So this morning, I have you look here at how this exiled son of Korah thinks about those houses and remind yourself the great privilege we have to be here. It's not beautiful. It's just four walls and a sermon. But here's Christ, his grace and his mercy coming to you. So we have a, a sense of separation, anxiety, I guess, if you will. Now, what's interesting here is we have now, as you come to verse five, a relentless drive for worship, we've already indicated that there's a pivot that takes place at verse 5. And I think that it's important that we situate the testimony about this, um, this uh, journey, which we're going to read about here, against the backdrop of longing. Because it's evident there's yearning, and now we're going to see there's relentless seeking. There is a relentless drive for worship. And you can see the image of journey here in what feels like a little bit of a... An awkward phrase, it says, how blessed in verse 5 is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. You see, you can't miss that idea that's dominant here of beatitude. But really what is the bigger image or thought here in our verse is this. He's blessed because of what? He's blessed because of where he's going. In whose heart are the ways to Zion. Now I know that's italicized in our translations and some of your translations don't even have that. One reason why it gets tacked on here is because by the time you get to verse 7, it's fairly evident that the highway unfolds through a journey that heads from wherever exile is to Zion, the house of God. But the sense here is that this son of Korah has something like an internal GPS in his heart. The highways to God are in his heart. He knows the way home. reading last week of a a great story about dogs 
And I'm a sucker for dogs. Love dogs. This family had a beautiful golden lab. And uh, they moved from Missouri to Kansas. And uh, a dog got separated from them as they got back. They got to their new house in Kansas. And guess what? The story ends very well. That dog had made a 50-mile journey back to its old home. And no one knows how it got there. The GPS was in that dog's heart, if you will. That's what the psalmist is saying, something like that. He knows the pathway to the house of God. He knows how to get there. Even though he's in this place of of exile. And so this is about a journey. And the thing here that we learn about this journey is that the blessed life that's spoken of here, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you. The blessing of that is bound up in this, that he relentlessly seeks God. And he seeks him in his worship. Blessed life is for that one who comes to the house of God to feed upon Christ. And I want you to notice the difficulty of this journey we have an image of the unrelenting drive in verse 6 passing through the valley of Baca they make it a spring the early rain also covers it with blessing the idea of passing confirms to us this is a journey it's about movement towards something and so it ties into that idea of the highways uh, to the house of the Lord in his heart But the thing here that speaks of the relentless nature of the pursuit is where he has to go or go through. And it's the valley of Baca. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Scholars have no idea where this valley is. All kinds of proposals are offered. But but I I think you're on a better track to, to understand this more in a symbolic way, because the root of the word baka means weeping or sorrow. And so the point of what he is saying here is that he is yearning so much for the house of the Lord, he's willing to descend into the valley of sorrows. So he can get there. And the difficulty of this journey is reinforced by what you read here. As they're kicking rocks through the wilderness of this valley of Baca, notice here, you're told, they make it a spring and the early rain also covers it with blessings. And what everybody agrees to is this is a desert. This is destitute. This is total deprivation. There's no water here. And so some scholars say, why in the world does our text say they make it a spring? How does the worshiper in pursuit of the house of the Lord make the desert a spring? They said, that makes no sense. But it does. Because this journey is animated by faith. Faith is digging holes in the desert sand. Why? Because passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring, and the early rain covers it with blessings. You see, the idea is here of the fact that they've embraced the hardship. They've accepted the notion that it'll be a struggle to serve God and to worship Him. 
And so here they are in the midst of this valley of Bacaw with its deprivations and its aridness and its trials and its hardships, but they won't stop. So they dig their holes in faith, waiting for those early rains to descend upon the earth and to turn that desert into a watery oasis. This speaks of God's grace and of his provision. And the point of it all is to say that in responding to this call to the Lord's house by faith, as long as we take that path and we respond to that calling and we follow this yearning where it takes us and seek the Lord, God will take whatever faith we have and he'll respond to that with showers of his grace. And the reason is because faith understands that God loves to be trusted. Think of that again. Faith understands that God loves to be trusted, especially when it makes no sense. Faith will receive the abundance of grace. And so look at the testimony of verse 7. Again, it puts us in the journey here as it says they go. But I want you to notice what it says about the going. They go from strength, strength. See that we think of the Valley of Bacal as this arid and dry, desert-like, deprived place with its haunts and its jackals, its deprivation, its hardships, its misery. And the psalmist says that's just going from strength. And as you persevere through that Valley of Bacal, focused on what's on the other end of the valley, it just is all about going from strength to strength. It's as if you're leapfrogging over the hardships. And it ends with them arriving in Zion. You see, though, it was uh, through toil and tears, the yearning that led to seeking concluded in finding. They appear before God. In Zion. Before we bring it to our final point, we should just pause and think about the significance of, of this journey here, which flows from faith and ardent passion for Christ and his courts. Calvin has a wonderful, insightful set of comments here. And the first one is no impediments can prevent the courageous worshipers of God from making conscience of waiting upon the sanctuary. In other words, he's saying that there should be nothing that can stand in your way to go to the house of God. And the first application he makes of that is that this is a reprimand and reproof to spiritual sluggishness. He says, reproof is administered to the slothfulness of those who won't submit to inconvenience for the sake of benefiting from the service of God. In other words, he's saying that the true believer distinguishes himself from the pretender by being willing to be inconvenienced, to disciplining themselves, to enduring the hardships of the valley of Bacal in order that they may obtain the prize of what faith seeks, which is Christ. And so the psalmist isn't preaching a sort of seeker-sensitive Christianity. It's preaching 
discipleship as Christ understood it. He said, when you would be my disciple, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It is lamentable that contemporary Christianity, at least a large chunk of it, bears upon its stamp the obvious and alternative message of the psalmist here. Because it caters to appetites of the slothful and the people who don't want to do any cross-bearing or travel through the valley of Bacaw. Instead, we're told no cross is carried, no inconvenience is required, no valley of Bacaw has to be endured. And the best part of being a half-hearted, lackluster, selfish follower of Christ is that Jesus still gives you all the good stuff. He fixes your marriage, gets you a better job at work, tosses a little bit extra money in your pocket. And we call that seeker-friendly Christianity. Because no one should be offended. Just trim off the rough edges of this Christianity stuff and cross stuff and deny yourself stuff and hardship stuff. Valley of Bacchus. Nah, don't, 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 don't read those texts. Just, just stay on the good stuff. Calvin says, those who have true heart religion direct their steps to the sanctuary of God. Not only was easy and cheerful, but they also walk through rugged and barren deserts. True religion embraces the struggle because it perceives that the end is greater than the suffering. Second thing here is that the provision of God in Baca encourages us. Notice here this testimony of the carving out of the pit so that they're filled up with the early rains. This is speaking about the Christian journey. What believers do, they carve out pools in their valley of Baca with all of its frustrations and trials and hardships, knowing that when they do that, when they hold their post, when they... Uh, when they mark their allegiance to Christ, when they stand firm for the truth, that God's grace will be there. So this morning, if you came into the Lord's house struggling and squirming because of your trials, because of your hardships, because of the difficulties of seeking God, by going to the valley of Bacaw, you need to remind yourself this morning, that as you exercise faith by digging those pits along the road, that the early rains come and they saturate those places and turn them into pools. See, it's not because we're better or because we're stronger or we have broader spiritual shoulders. It's because of Christ. It's because of his grace. So don't be offended by the fiery trial. Don't lose heart because of the hardship. Take yourself back to verse 7. They go from strength to strength and they appear before God in Zion. God won't fail. It's not on you. It's on Christ. Finally, we see a set of motives for the journey of uh, it's interesting here because, as I said, we've pivoted from exaltation to journey. Eight through nine, you have a prayer for the king, and then you come into verse 10. And I assume that this, at least in terms of the of the rhetorical flow and the picture, and it's unfolding here in this psalm, that he's arrived. 
he's gotten his wish, which is to be back into the courts of the Lord. And what he is immediately impressed with emerges in verse 10 and in verse 11. I want you to notice that first word for in both verse 10 and verse 11, because they reach back to verse 7, where it ends with them appearing before God. And now he's reporting to us what it is that's and the first thing is this, this impression. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Here we have the grounds for persevering and pursuing relentlessly this seeking of God, even through the difficulty. is because here what you learn is that coming to the house of God reminds you immediately of his value. It's so profoundly powerful in his impression that he said, I'll take five minutes sitting on God's front porch than a thousand anywhere else. And then he makes it even more clear in terms of a determination for the threshold. The word uh, translated rather here is, is not rather. This is not a, a wish kind of, this is a determination. It is a choice. It is to make a selection. And he is expressing his personal determination. And his personal determination is for the threshold. Remember, we saw in 1 Chronicles 9.19, that threshold, same word there as is here, is the outer court of the temple sanctuary, the tabernacle sanctuary, and the sons of Korah were, call, were called to stand guard there. So he said, I choose, I choose to walk the line and to stand my post as a guard in the house of the Lord. I'd rather do that than dwell in tents of wickedness. The tense of wickedness doesn't have to be the most diabolical form of evil and moral depravity there is. Tense of wickedness is anything that stands as contrary to or as an alternative to Christ. And that's the world around us. I remember watching a, a show here and there. Mostly I turned it off so I was bored with it as a kid. It was called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous where this fellow with a British accent, uh, Robert Leitch, would go around to the uh, houses of celebrities and the wealthy and show off the opulence of it all. The five-star luxury resort type lifestyle that being rich and famous means. And showing how much fun they're supposedly having. And uh, this son of Korah says, I'll take the front porch. Spurgeon has it like no one like Spurgeon can say, God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's worst is better than the devil's best. People of God, do you love the front porch better than the luxury resort? I know you're constantly being imaged and messaged and called upon by the siren songs of the world around us. 
in a different direction. But you need to ask yourself this. Do you love the front porch more than the luxury resort and everything that it says it can offer? Well, he expands upon this in verse 11, and it feels very much more straightforward. I think it feels to us when we come to verse 11 that we can really identify with what's being said. I don't need to be a son of Korah standing at my guard post in the outer tabernacle to get what it means to know the blessing of God's house because he goes straight to images that, and concepts and words we can all lay hold of. He says in verse 11, now expounding upon the, the privilege and the benefit and the blessing of worshiping God at the tabernacle. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from ones who walk uprightly. And the first two images are taken from the idea of the journey, which is in the context in verses 5 through 7. God is son. This is the only time in the Bible where this is ever used of the Lord. But I, but I, again, think that it comes from the journey metaphor here, because as you think about the journey, the sun is the blessing along the way. S-U-N, because it's the sun that lights the path during the day. It's the sun which warms the earth after a cool evening. It's the sun which exposes the hideouts and hiding places of the bandits and the wild animals and keeps you safe along the way. And so it speaks of this great blessing of the sun for the traveler. And now symbolically or metaphorically, he's saying, this is what God is to you. He radiates the light of his grace and his blessing upon you. As you seek him, as you follow the path of the pilgrim, God is son. He is provider. And then he uses another image that fits the journey as he says, shield. It's about protection from peril. He is the one that protects from danger and harm and attack. It's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the believer is so in his hand that nothing can snatch them out. He is shield. We are strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But then he comes even closer to us now with the last two. He's grace. Grace. Children, you've been memorizing in your small catechism this question and answer. What does every sin deserve? What does every sin deserve? And every small child here knows the answer. It's the wrath and curse of God. With that, we'll never know what grace is. Because the wrath and curse of God is what every single person has earned. It's the goodness and the grace of God which we've all forfeited and what every single one of us has earned is wrath. And yet grace says that God in his mercy 
and in his sovereignty gives grace to those who preferred sin rather than Christ. What grace here says is that God takes that person who's turned their back and who has become a rebel, who has followed the pathway of sin and cultivated a life which is contrary to God, that God in his sovereign mercy still comes alongside that person and does what is surprising. He brings them what they didn't deserve. He gives grace. And we think of grace here, we think of every grace. That's regenerating grace, redeeming grace, new heart grace, the blood of Jesus grace, imputed righteousness grace, adoptive grace, indwelling of the Holy Spirit grace, union with Jesus Christ grace. Every single grace in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what he says he has learned as he drew near to God's house. By faith, he found God to be a God of grace. And then he reinforces it in a very powerful way. In a way that didn't need to be said, by the way. And in and, and this, I, I think that this is again a reminder of the grace of God's message to us. He withholds nothing good. You see, it's one thing to say God is son, that he's shield, that he gives grace. But, but the psalmist says, I'll take it a step further. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks to you this morning and he says, God won't withhold anything good. That means every grace. Inexhaustible without intermission, everything good. He illuminates your sight. He shields you from spiritual harm. He showers you with mercies. He gives everything good. That's for those who seek God. Let's conclude here with application. I'm going to use the very last verse as our point of application. Oh, Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. The psalmist is sharing with us the lesson learned of the person who seeks God. What he found is this summary line. How blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you have faith this morning, you are blessed. If you have faith this morning, you're blessed. You may not have everything you want in life. You may not have an easy life. In fact, you may have a difficult life. You may have come in here this morning concerned over just how miserable your life is. And you see, the devil likes to get us focused on all of those things, doesn't he? He loves discouraging the believer. But what he wouldn't count on and what he can't counter is what the psalmist says here. Those who trust in the Lord are blessed. It's definitive. It's final. There's no other word. You're blessed. And so this morning as we stand here in the house of the Lord, mark its blessings. God is sun. God is shield. 
God gives grace. God withholds nothing from you. That's good. And so when you take a moment to compare all what faith lays hold of to the worldly tents of wickedness, which are all over outside us here this morning and beckoning us with their call. I want you to be freshly impressed with what this once exiled son of Korah proclaimed. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. View of that affirmation. Let's seek God in Christ. Father Almighty, we thank you for your word and how it refreshes the soul. It speaks to us and all of our weariness and frustrations and trials and hardships in a way that feels just so familiar to us because it comes right down to us on our level and it whispers these powerful and penetrating words speaks them right into our hearts and fills our souls that are so riddled with anxiety and concerns with uh, that peace of God which passes all understanding. Lord, uh, help your people here to take up this shield to have the joy of you as son, to savor the grace and to keep crying out to you in prayer for everything good knowing that as they seek you in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, nothing will be withheld. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.